You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Welcome, everybody, to the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia. We are not going to talk about Michael Cohen today, uh, though Russia is again in the news. Today, in lieu of a lecture, uh, instead we have a panel of uh, great graduate students from across our fine departments on the UW campus uh, who are going to tell us about their field research. So these are five graduate students recently back from the field. Uh, they're all recipients of a Krika short-term field research reward. Uh, but let me just introduce our panelists in turn. So uh, to my far right, to your far left, uh, Kramer Gillen from the Department of Geography. Uh, next to him is uh, Piotr Puchowski from the Department of History. Zach Rowinski from the Department of German, Nordic, and Slavic. Victoria Sluka from Anthropology. And Delgar Turkal-Ufsch from Political Science. So we look forward to, we'll look forward to hearing from each of you about what you did in the field. Uh, so. Okay, we're here first time. Okay. Uh, um, so I did field work in uh, 11 months of 2016 and summer of last year, 2017, uh, looking at rural livelihoods and land reform in Tajikistan. And I focused specifically on people who own livestock there. They're not purely pastoralists. But um, my research looked at how rules and norms regarding access to and use of land for pasture or for fodder crops uh, has changed over time. And when I'm thinking about rules and norms, it could include current uh, government laws, it could include defunct government laws that people still think about and follow today. Um, Non-state laws or norms that might be, you know, uh, have arisen within communities or through, you know, some sort of customary law. And then also the um, non-state rules and norms that are created by development organizations doing work in Tajikistan also. So I'm looking at the evolution of all those, uh, mostly over the past, say, 30 years, but really with a focus on trying to understand what's going on right now. And it's an interesting uh, question because, um, so in Tajikistan, at the, since the fall of the Soviet Union, there have been a lot of entities coming in, um, trying to speed them along the path to land privatization, I mean, especially USAID. And while there's you know a lot of debate over whether or not privatization is beneficial for uh, agriculture, that debate is mostly focused on cropland. When it comes to pasture, there's actually pretty widespread agreement that collective land use works better, even in places like the U.S. A lot of people use government land for grazing. And so the privatization that's affecting pasture um, in Tajikistan is an ex- especially interesting case study because some of the previous arrangements, I think lots of diverse groups would agree, um, would actually be better to retain. And in, in a lot of cases, they have been retained despite the changes in government law. Um, so for my field work, I did a combination of interviews, focus groups, surveys, uh, some <clears throat> kind of, I could lie and call it archival work, but I don't have the like historical methods to really call it that. I went to places and took pictures of old documents, but it wasn't very um, methodical. My, I split my time between the capital of Tajikistan, Dushanbe, where I did interviews or worked with academics, uh, people who work for NGOs, and some government officials, and got a bunch of documents there. 
but I spent the majority of my time in a rural district up in the mountains where I did more interviews and focus groups and household surveys. You know, in villages of five households, I was based part of the time in a town of 6,000. That was kind of the metropolis of the area. And then I would go out hiking into the mountains to talk to um, mobile herders uh, who were there in the summer. I had a few problems with the obstacles in the research that I'll just bring up that might provide um, ideas for questions later on. One was the constant surveillance by the security service. They would sometimes say, you know, oh, why did you go to this village on Saturday? And it was a village of, like I said, you know, five households, and it was amazing. They kept pretty close tabs on me. There were uh, differences that were kind of useful for me in my research to think about between permissions I got from the national government and whether or not the local governments at the district level honored those permissions. And so there was about a three-month period where I was kind of grounded and unable to conduct any research because I was told by local authorities that I was not allowed to, despite the fact that I got you know, permission from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, government officials not willing to talk at all was another issue. Um, and then among my informants, unfamiliarity with, with academic research. So they were much more, they thought of uh, foreigners mostly as people who worked for uh, aid agencies, or if you're a government person, foreigners could be people who were about to incite rebellion too. So, um, so you know, I go through the whole IRB process of you know explaining the research, being very clear. There is absolutely no way this will benefit you in any way. Oh, sorry, uh, the institutional review board that that makes sure that you're performing your research ethically, not promising things you can't live up to, and making sure everyone is aware of the balance of risks and benefits that come with the with participating in your research. And so I would explain there are no benefits, uh, there are some risks, and please be nice to me and answer my questions. And then they would answer my questions and say, so when is the medicine for our children coming, or something like that? And I'd be like, where are you getting this? I told you specifically. And so I, I, I felt very, you know, kind of guilty, but also, like, I just tried to hammer home the point as much as I could. So that was another problem. No, so, I, so another thing we were asked to talk about is maybe some recommendations that I'll just kind of fly through, and then if people want to talk more about them, I can. One is to try to do, to the extent possible, as much uh, pre-dissertation or pre-main research period travel as you can. Um, uh, I think classes are the way people do this a lot. I squandered mine by using it on language acquisition. But I, <laughs> um, we didn't hear that. <laughs> we did not hear no, that. No, so anyway, I, just, I, was, I was doing the language thing the whole time exactly like I was supposed to. It would have been great to, to do some uh, pre-dissertation research then. Luckily, I'd spent a lot of time in country beforehand. And so I just recommend keeping uh, in good touch with a lot of different contacts, keeping them on your good side, because you don't know who might be useful, um, and you don't know what problems will arise that people might be able to solve, even if it seems that their you know, interests uh, might be peripheral to your, to your research. Um, and then keep good relationships with people who are definitely not part of your research at all, because having friends is a good way to keep sane if you're doing a long-term research project. Having some relationships with foreign organizations might be useful. I think a lot of people try to create those bonds before they arrive in a place to help kind of get them on their feet, but I would caution against forming too close a relationship with any foreign organization until you know how it's viewed in the place where you're doing your research. Um, so just be very cautious about that. I have trouble interviewing people in government. Try to figure out who had the job before them because they might not be bound to the same uh, rules about getting permission from superiors as, as the person who currently holds the role. I worked with research assistants quite a bit, and I can answer questions about that. I usually had one kind of go-to person who helped mostly with logistics and kind of getting me introduced places, not really conducting any research themselves. Um, 
and then I used enumerators uh, for my survey. So if you want to, I can happy to talk about that. And then lastly, in you know, Tajikistan's a, a place where they like to know exactly what's going on all the time. So I had to worry a lot about data security and thinking about um, using VPNs when backing up my data. Um, how to you know what to do with um, flash drives planning for my exit from the country and thinking about all the things that could happen at the airport. Um, and I didn't really have anything that I actually thought was super sensitive. It was more thinking about the this institutional review board requires that you protect all your data. And so even if you think it's not that big a deal, you have to take responsibility for, for protecting. Um, so I think either maybe some people at the IRB here or at Do It or maybe the Office of Cybersecurity on campus could help people out with that. It's something to plan for before you go. And I'll, I guess I'll leave it at that. Okay, thanks very much, Kramer. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I did make a few slides. Okay. So thank you for the thank you to the faculty for inviting me to be part of this panel. Um, so broadly speaking, my dissertation project um, is about the interwar Polish state engaging in colonial ideas and actions. Um, so the interwar period, as as you know, was between 1918 and 1939. The wars being the world wars, and um, the Krika travel award that I received, um, uh, I used in the summer of 2017, so last year, uh, to go to Warsaw, Poland to conduct archival research and also to, um, to visit the National, Arch uh, National uh, Library in Warsaw to, uh, to read books, um, articles, pamphlets, flyers, and um, similar sources. So the reason why I became interested in this topic was because I found it fascinating that a newly created state would uh, embark on a colonial campaign, so a campaign to, to obtain um, colonies broadly defined in Africa and South America. As you know, Poland had been partitioned by three neighboring empires at the end of the 18th century, the Habsburg monarchy, uh, Prussia, later known as Germany, and Russia. Uh, so Poland itself had a legacy of being imperialized, or at least perceived itself as being imperialized, and then nevertheless in 1918, the, the Polish elites, um, or at least uh, part, you know, ma many members of the Polish elite decided that Poland needed to have its own colonies in a world that was defined by colonialism, and where colonialism was um, even institutionalized in the League of Nations, which was the predecessor of uh, the UN. So uh, before I went to Warsaw last summer, or in, in the summer of 2017, I um, asked myself what questions I wanted to answer. Uh, so in the first place, I wanted to know if these colonial aspirations that um, the Poland, the Polish elites had in um, 1918 to 1939 reflected any actual problems that the country might have been facing, either domestically or internationally. In the second place, I wanted to know if any of these aspirations actually materialized, if, if the Polish individuals and organizations in charge of these colonial projects actually Im implemented them. And, South America and Africa. Next, I wanted to know what these colonial actions would look like in a Wilsonian world where, um, again, the age of conquest was over, uh, the scramble for Africa was over, um, now you had colonialism institutionalized in the League of Nations, uh, you had mandates that were entrusted to uh, particular empires. So this was just uh, the mode of, of being an institutional governance. In, in, in that period, so um, I wanted to know how that would define the nature of these aspirations and actions. And next, um, I want—I also wanted to know 
what role these decolonial aspirations play in Polish diplomacy. Uh, by that I mean to what extent was this just a farce that the Polish government was um, was putting forward to um, to accomplish certain diplomatic goals or dipl um, or, or foreign policy goals. So the extent to which this wasn't actually a realistic goal, but just uh, a front for uh, for accomplishing diplomatic uh, ends. Uh, and finally, I wanted to know. Well, I wanted to um, prove to myself that um, there was something important about this topic. So I spoke to average um, uh, individuals that I encountered during my trip and uh, talked to them about the, any potential significance that this history might have for their lives or for the ways in which they perceive Poland as a country nowadays, perhaps its uh, current tensions with the European Union, and so on. All right, so what I found um, in Warsaw, but also in other countries, because after um, I spent two months in Warsaw. I also went to visit um, three other countries in Europe, uh, Germany, France, and Great Britain, using other scholarships and also my, my year-long fellowship. So in the first place, I found that um, the question of colonialism was for Poland, or these Polish elites, related to the question of emigration. So thousands upon thousands of Polish people were leaving Poland in the interwar period to go to South America, and most of them ended up in Brazil and Argentina. So the Polish government made, uh, made an effort to concentrate those people in an area that it considered of um, a, a shaky political status that could possibly be uh, that could possibly become autonomous in the future, and uh, the Polish government thought that it could gain influence in that in that area. So uh, that was the Brazilian, Argentinian, Paraguayan, Bordeauxland. What I found, what I also found, was that the Polish government uh, gradually these colonial ideas um, evolved from being about emigration to being about uh, pioneering in Africa, so creating colonies from scratch as opposed to using emigrants, uh, existing emigrants in South America, to uh, uh, for political and economic purposes. So, in order to justify uh, creating colonies from scratch in Africa and other um, empires, colonies or settlements in other empires, colonies, uh, the Polish elites came up with the idea that Poland was, the Polish nation uh, was superior morally to other European nations because, precisely because it had, in, had um, colonies um, in the past, so it could civilize Africans uh, better uh, in a more uh, humane fashion. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so... There are also several other interesting facts that I discovered um, in Warsaw, um, also in London. They were trying to infiltrate um, Portuguese Angola and independent Liberia, uh, again using this idea that Poland was trying to help Africans. The Polish government um, was staging a rebellion of indigenous people in Liberia. It didn't work out, but nevertheless, it was just a fascinating discovery. And uh, I also uh, realized that Poland was almost doomed to pursue a colonial policy because Germany was doing it. So this was almost a function of Polish-German rivalry that was transposed to Africa. Um, Poland just felt that it would um, not be able to keep on par with Germany if it didn't follow in Germany's footsteps by, again, infiltrating Africa trying to establish settlements, um, getting raw materials and natural resources out of Africa. 
so just a couple of um, travel tips that I have for any other students who might be going to the field. I would, in opposition to what um, Kramer said, I would actually advise you to do talk to uh, local experts uh, such as archivists um, and interact with institutions as well. Maybe this is different in a country like Poland, uh, obviously, because it's, it's maybe a little more politically and, and more democratic than Tajikistan, but nevertheless, um, talk to them because they really know, uh, archivists know what's in the archive and uh, they know more than stands in the catalog or in the finding aid, so um, use their knowledge to your advantage. Spend your time taking notes. So don't just take, don't just write down several words um, after you've read a file. Um, actually, write a whole paragraph that later on you can insert into your paper into your dissertation. Um, I think that's just a better approach, and it worked better for me. Um, if, if you are visiting multiple countries, evaluate if you really have to visit those countries because it costs money and you know, it, and time it takes time. So um, evaluate your itinerary very carefully. If you're a historian and you're ordering um, archival units from from um, an archive, um, I would, if I were, I would order units that are unrelated to your dissertation, just so that you get a broader perspective uh, on your topic, uh, and just so that you don't just spend your time reading about one very niche uh, subject. Um, and uh, again, look for the significance of your research and maybe how your topic is depicted in. Uh, museums, for example. So if you look at these pictures, um, the picture in the upper right is uh, a part of the exhibition of the Emigration Museum in Gdynia, and they have a very, very small section on Polish colony aspirations, and um, it was just fascinating uh, for me to see that they included that and how they included it, and how they talked about the topic. It wasn't, it was very simplistic, it wasn't, so they didn't sort of go into any nuance, so um, that made me think about it. Um, how I contribute to the conversation. Um, and I also visited a monument of a colonial activist that's, uh, that stands to this day in Gdynia in the north of Poland. So. Um, yeah, so I will be happy to answer any questions later on, and um, I will pass the ball to my colleague. Super. Thanks very much, Peter. Zach. Hey, um, hi, everyone. Can everybody hear me if I speak at this volume? <coughs> Great. Um, no, I'd like to start by um, thank Enrica for uh, the funding that made uh, my research possible and for the invitation to participate in this roundtable today. I uh, conducted archival research in Moscow during the summer of 2017, and I worked at two archives, um, which uh, we can talk about later on, the differences between archives. Um, uh, uh, these for me were GARF, the Gosudarstvenny Archiv Rosiska Ferrazzi, and then after that, Ergali, uh, the Rosiski Gosudarstvenny Archiv Literatury i Iskust. And I was in Moscow um, doing research for my dissertation project, which uh, concerns the poetry written in connection with the 10 year anniversary of the October Revolution that was celebrated in 1927. And Specifically, I focus on uh, narrative long-form poems on historical subjects uh, written by uh, three authors who are all in their own ways trying to narrate the revolutionary past. It's a time, the 10-year anniversary, for looking back at um, how the revolution happened and what progress has been made um, in the decade um, since then. Uh, these three poets um, I have in my 
blurb are Nikolai Asayev, Vladimir Mayakovsky, and Boris Pasternak. Uh, and they're connected in various ways beyond uh, their participation in the literary component of the anniversary celebration. And one of those ways is that each of them, uh, whether implicitly or explicitly, makes claims to uh, a certain degree of factuality in their works. They um, are using source materials to create narratives that all, one way or another, are presented as telling a true story of what happened. Um, and so uh, in order to uh, test this claim that had a theoretical background that they're putting into practice now, um, it was uh, crucial that I look at their source materials and see how they are engaging with some facts and not others, maybe, or how they are maybe uh, distorting things or leaving some things out in order to create these narratives. And I was focused on the narrative poem of Nikolai Aseyev uh, while I was there. Um, uh, this uh, narrative poem is called Simeon Praskakov, and uh, the title character is a miner who becomes a Bolshevik partisan during the Civil War in uh, Siberia and uh, some northern Kazakhstan. Uh, and in the 1920s, he left reminiscences which were discovered by Asayev and used as kind of the main uh, source material, among some other things, uh, for his narrative poem. And this was well known and well established in the scholarship, but nobody, as far as I can tell, had actually looked at the source material against the uh, literary text, um, or if they had looked at it, they hadn't written about it. Um, so I went um, to Moscow in search of that text. And uh, this kind of, I'll intersperse some pieces of advice in the rest of my time. Uh, and the first thing that I would emphasize is to uh, just know before you go. Know as much as possible. Um, do as much preparatory work as possible before you get there. So uh, Asayev had helpfully left a citation in his narrative poem um, of an archive that was since closed. So I tracked down what happened to that archive. It looked like it, um, all those materials had been moved to what is today Garth and went there um, very hopeful that I would you know, um, perform a keyword search and there would be the reminiscences and that would be it. And that didn't happen at all. This um, turned into uh, detective work um, that uh, at one point also underwent a crisis of confidence where I was just not finding this document with all of the creative searching that I was, was doing um, and thinking, what if he did actually just make this guy up, and I'm never going to be able to prove that, but I also can't find the document um, that I am looking for. Um, that passed, and I did eventually find it, and, uh, and that, that document is really at the center of my analysis of, of Asayev and the mechanisms by which he uses and doesn't use uh, factual material in his narrative. Um, so after that, with about the remaining month or so of my time, I was working at Irgali, and here I had kind of the opposite task, and I was casting a much wider net, uh, looking for material on these authors and how they engage with history, and the literary component of the 1927 anniversary and things like that. And this 
was, uh, like at Garf, this was sometimes slow and frustrating work, so be prepared for that. Um, but again, preparation was, was really crucial. Um, each archive uh, that I've worked in has its own idiosyncrasies about how you uh, request and review material. And um, I put in a lot of time prior to this trip uh, making lists of the materials that I wanted to look at. Um, the Ergali catalog is online now. Um, and you can slog through its listings. And so I at least went to Ergoli uh, with less time than I wanted, but knowing more or less what I wanted to look at and it, you know, what my main priorities were. So without doing that, I wouldn't have gotten nearly as much done, I don't think. So uh, my last piece of advice is kind of echoing what, um, what uh, Kramer and Piotr have said. Um, be nice to people, especially archivists. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Um, but like I said, um, working in archives can be extremely slow and can be extremely frustrating. And being on good terms with the people who are, uh, are there and um, who you hope to facilitate that process is um, a great benefit. And I will uh, leave it at that, I think. And um, we'll be happy to answer questions later on. Great. OK, thank you, Jay, Sam. Could you pull up the yeah. projector, please? Victoria. I am Victoria okay. Sluka. I'm a PhD candidate in the anthropology department. I'm focusing on archaeology. Um, so my uh, dissertation focuses on technological attributes of pile textiles. Um, so pile textiles, just so everyone knows, are not the sort of traditional over-under, over-under that you might think of as like woven textiles. Um, they have kind of a fuzzy surface, like maybe you've seen like shag carpets, they're fuzzy. Uh, so that's the kind of textile I'm talking about. Um, it was developed in Central Asia about 2,000 years BC, and so they have a really long and really rich history of making um, pile textiles. Uh, so this summer I traveled to Achrar, which is in South Kazakhstan. Um, a couple hours from Shimkent and pretty near um, the Uzbek and Kyrgyz borders. Uh, I spent most of my time in Achrar, which is a tiny little village um, with no people. And I did spend a couple of days in Shimkent, Almaty, and Astana, um, but like I said, most of my time was in Achrar. So basically, I am doing what Kramer suggested that everyone do, is very pre-dissertation research. Uh, I probably won't start my official dissertation research until next summer, but I use this as kind of a fact-finding mission to just to see what kinds of information I could get, what kinds of things I needed to know in advance of more intensive dissertation research that I'll uh, start next summer. Uh, so, like I said, I was studying carpets, which mostly involved just sort of talking to little old ladies in various <laughs> villages. Um, that's what I spent most of my time doing. Like I said, this is very pre-dissertation, so I didn't have any really specific goals of what kind of information I wanted to get. I just wanted to see what people would tell me uh, and what kinds of images I could take and things like that. So I got a very mixed bag of some people were very helpful and some people were not helpful at all. And uh, just overall got a really clear idea of what I want to do the next time I was there. The My number one recommendation is sort of relating to what these guys have said and sort of contrary. Depending on where you are, it can be really helpful to embed yourself with an existing group. 
So I was part of an archaeological team, a Kazakh British archaeological unit that was working in Atrar. And even though my own research doesn't really include like traditional archaeology digging, um, I am like I know how to do all of that. I'm qualified, so I worked with this group and taught undergrads and kind of traded my teaching abilities for a place to stay, connections, um, you know, assistance in general. And I cannot tell you how much easier it is to do things if, you know, you have sort of a name recognition to go along with it, especially in a place um, like Kazakhstan where everything's a little bit like who you know. Um, so because I was with this unit that's been working there for years, I could just say, oh, I'm with these people, and people would talk to me. Uh, so that really, really helped. My other recommendation would be, uh, as they have said, you know, look into what you want to do in advance, like have a plan, but also in countries where it's maybe not so easy to Google things, uh, be totally open to just kind of winging it when you get there. Uh, most of my most helpful experiences were from things I wasn't planning on doing, things that I kind of just ended up doing, like organizations I didn't know about in advance, um, people that I would never have talked to on my own. Uh, so just kind of don't set yourself in too tightly because it might turn out that something that you thought would be really helpful, not worth doing, you should do something else. So don't like lock yourself in. Um, also, as the guys have said, be nice to people, but not just, you know, to be a decent human being, but also because, you know, the person who's in, in the shop might not have any information specifically helpful to you, but maybe their cousin works in the museum or, you know, their great uncle is the director of something or other. And I cannot tell you how often I would meet someone who didn't know anything about carpets particularly, but who knew someone who did. And they could be like, oh, I'll hook you up and you can talk to this person. So, you know, be nice so that you're a good person, but also be nice because these people know a lot more about uh, their hometown than you do. And they will always be able to give you more information, especially about people who aren't part of larger institutions that might be really helpful for you, but that you wouldn't be able to find, you know, from a, a listserv or a, like a museum database. So just sort of overall, I would say that this, uh, as Kramer said, it's really important and helpful to try to do some pre-dissertation sort of recon, uh, just so that when you actually have to go and get something done, you don't kind of waste time waffling, trying to decide what to do and who to talk to. Um, you just have a generally a better idea of what kinds of people and what kinds of institutions are helpful to you. Uh, so that is my little spiel. I'll turn it over. Okay. Thank Thanks you, Victoria. Thank you. Um, so I don't have a presentation, um, but um, I, uh, I will start with kind of giving you a little bit of background on my research interests uh, and where my dissertation research is coming from. So uh, my broad research interest is in political economy of natural resource dependence in <coughs> Russia and Mongolia, which is where I'm originally from. And uh, as many of you perhaps know, there's uh, extensive literature that suggests an economic resource curse, which basically lays out a mechanism in which unearned windfall income from natural resource exploitation, it uh, undermines uh, leaders and institutions' ability to um, uh, sustain economic growth. 
Um, and as a result, a lot of these uh, resource-rich countries end up developing slower than the resource-poor counterparts. Um, so I kind of, uh, my dissertation research builds on this resource-cursed literature, and I, in my dissertation I ask, uh, what happens when um, the windfall revenues that the resource-rich countries have been receiving actually decline? So in other words, what happens when instead of a positive revenue shock, these resource-rich countries experience negative revenue shock? Does it simply reverse the resource curse or uh, something else happens when uh, negative revenue shocks happen? Um, so um, in the, my dissertation, um, I basically uh, I focus on uh, Russia since the, the uh, 1990s, and I look at two negative revenue shocks that uh, uh, affected the level of natural resource revenues in Russian regions. The first happened in 2002 as a result of tax reform that basically centralized uh, almost all of regions' share of oil and gas revenues from the regions to Moscow. And the second shock that I focused on is uh, the price-induced negative revenue shock that happened after 2014. So um, with help from uh, support from CRICA and the Carnegie Foundation, I spent this summer in Moscow, Moscow and in um, uh, Kazan in Tatarstan. Uh, and the idea was to kind of um, interview local uh, scholars, public officials, and uh, business owners in, in the capital city as well as in a resource-dependent region and kind of to get a sense of how the uh, post-2014 shock has affected business owners' ability to do business and what uh, scholars and public officials have to say about that and whether there's discrepancy between the uh, pictures that emerge from these different sources of uh, interviews. Um, so my primary task, I, I did some uh, gathering of uh, statistical information, but my primary task was basically to locate as many people as possible from these three groups and interview them. The biggest task, the biggest difficulty that I have encountered in trying to interview these people is, uh, same as Kramer, the uh, kind of uh, unwillingness of people to speak to a, a scholar from a Western institution, especially public officials. Um, so I was not exactly very successful in locating uh, interviewees uh, who are currently working in ministries and state agencies. But I think one thing that I had going for me was the fact that I am from Mongolia and I would usually kind of lead with that and then quietly slip the information that I study in an American university. Um, and that, I think, uh, helped, especially with business owners, they would be kind of like trying to uh, place me as like somebody who is pro-Western, uh, uh, countries are not, and like that, I felt like uh, was a good thing that I was able to tell them that I'm like you, I'm from Mongolia, and so on. In terms of uh, advice, um, I guess uh, one particular specific advice uh, uh, regarding interviewing public officials is to kind of uh, try to get in touch with these people as early as possible. So what I what happened was um, I started to uh, kind of email public officials once I got to Moscow 
and um, I received responses from some of the <coughs> ministries in like mid-August, like a month and a half after I had left Russia. So <laughs> that was kind of, um, and there were like really official responses, but I kind of uh, thought I had to reach out to these people uh, sooner uh, than I did. Um, another uh, piece of advice uh, that kind of echoes what the other speakers talked about is um, kind of try to establish formal or informal affiliation with uh, local organizations there. So in my case, um, I when I first went to the field, my advisor, Scott Gettler, um, he put me in touch with his contacts uh, at the um, Higher School of Economics with a particular center that focuses on studies of institutions and development there. And they have been, they have made the world of difference in my experience as a foreign scholar trying to do field research in Russia, I think. So they helped with like obtaining visa, uh, finding affordable uh, accommodation in basically downtown Moscow. Um, but beyond that, it was uh, nice to have this kind of like intellectually stimulating environment in which you can see other. Uh, international and local scholars doing research, attend their workshops, and just stay engaged, especially um, if you are planning to do longer field work um, in the region. So I felt like that was a very important uh, uh, part of my experience. One minute left, okay. Um, I think I'm pretty much done, but I, I will be happy to um, answer questions. Okay, thank you very much, Debbie. So uh, at this point, I'm going to turn uh, the gavel over to Jennifer Fischler, who will manage the discussion. Thank you.